TED Audio Collective. In their 20s, my parents left everything they knew in West Africa and moved to the U.S., which led to opportunities, a job, a home, and the ability to transform their lives and the lives of so many others, like mine and our family back home. It's like when you get that job and you get a work visa, man, this this weight is lifted off your shoulder. Yes. That was Efosa Ojomo, who, similar to my parents, told me that he left Nigeria when he was 16. And so figuring out how do I, how do I give that to others too, you know, right. it's, 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 it's critical. Just like my parents, Efosa had a really unique opportunity, but he wasn't sure how to use it in a way that would meaningfully help people. So he started reading about aid and economic development, about how to alleviate poverty. And after a few years in the U.S., he returned to Nigeria to start a nonprofit. They dug wells, gave out mosquito nets, funded educational programs. But he wanted to make even more of an impact. Transferring these resources, providing this aid, it's a short-term fix, right? We're fixing symptoms of a bigger problem. And when I did that for a few years, I realized this isn't really working. um, Because Mm. the goal is not to just alleviate poverty for a little bit. The goal is to create prosperity. It's to make people prosper, dignity. So what do you do when short-term fixes aren't working? You try something new. And that's what Afosa did. This is TED Business. I'm Madupe Akinola. But for you, I can say, Madupe Akinola. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I'm I'm also a Nigerian Afosa. But here I'm Afosa. And after working on that nonprofit, Efosa studied with Clay Christensen, a renowned professor at Harvard Business School, and together they tried to figure out what it takes to alleviate poverty in the long term. Their insights led to a book called The Prosperity Paradox. And so tell us more about what is the paradox at the heart of that book. Yeah, the, the paradox at the heart of it is the idea that uh, you don't fix poverty by trying to fix the visible signs of poverty. And so mm-hmm. you go into a community and you see there's no water, there's no schools, there's no hospitals, no roads, no nothing. And it's like, oh, let's just provide these resources, right? And that'll fix poverty. That's not how you do it, actually. It's counterintuitive. Instead, You fix poverty by trying to create prosperity. You fix poverty um, by trying to understand why is there no water? Why are there no schools? Uh, Why why, why are there no functioning clinics and infrastructure? Um, So in in our book, we focus on a a specific type of innovation that we call market-creating innovations. So in the talk we're about to hear, Efosa explains these market-creating innovations, what they look like, how they bring prosperity, and how they transform systems like corruption. But what does it really take to build them, especially in environments that you might not be accustomed to? We'll dig into that after the talk. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more 
at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Hey, TED Business listeners. We're supported by our friends at Working Smarter, a new podcast from Dropbox exploring the exciting potential of AI in the workplace. Working Smarter talks with founders, researchers, and engineers about the things they're building and the problems they're solving with the help of the latest AI tools. Tools that can save them time, improve collaboration, and create more space for the work that matters most. On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So in 2011, someone broke into my sister's office at the university where she teaches in Nigeria. Now, thankfully, the person was caught, arrested, and charged to court. But on getting to court, the clerks who were assigned to my sister's case informed her that they wouldn't be able to process the paperwork unless she paid a bribe. At first, she she thought it was part of a practical joke, but then she realized they were serious, and then she became furious. I mean, think about it. Here she was, the recent victim of a crime, with the very people who were supposed to help her, and they were demanding a bribe from her. That's just one of the many ways that corruption impacts millions of people in my country. You know, growing up in Nigeria, corruption permeated virtually every element of the society. Reports of politicians embezzling millions of dollars were common. Police officers stealing money or extorting money from everyday hardworking citizens was routine practice. I felt that development could never actually happen so long as corruption persisted. But over the past several years, in my research on innovation and prosperity, I've learned that corruption is actually not the problem hindering our development. In fact, conventional thinking on corruption and its relationship to development is not only wrong, but it's holding many poor countries backwards. So the thinking goes like this. In a society that's poor and corrupt, our best shot at reducing corruption is to create good laws, enforce them well, and this will make way for development and innovation to flourish. Now, it makes sense on paper, which is why many governments and development organizations invest billions of dollars annually on institutional reform and anti-corruption programs. But many of these programs fail to reduce corruption because we have the equation backwards. 
You see, societies don't develop because they've reduced corruption. They're able to reduce corruption because they've developed. And societies develop through investments in innovation. Now, at first, I thought this was impossible. Why would anyone in their right mind invest in a society where, you know, at least on the surface, seems a terrible place to do business? You know, a society where politicians are corrupt and consumers are poor. But then the more I learned about the relationship between innovation and corruption, the more I started to see things differently. Here's how this played out in sub-Saharan Africa as the region developed its telecommunications industry. In the late 1990s, fewer than 5% of people in sub-Saharan Africa had phones. In Nigeria, for example, the country had more than 110 million people, but fewer than half a million phones in the whole nation. Now, this scarcity fueled widespread corruption in the industry. I mean, public officials who worked for the state-owned phone companies demanded bribes from people who wanted phones. And because most people couldn't afford to pay the bribes, phones were only available to those who were wealthy. Then an entrepreneur named Mo Ibrahim decided that he would set up a telecommunications company on the continent. And when he told his colleagues about his idea, they just laughed at him. But Mo Ibrahim was undeterred. And so in 1998, he set up Celtel. The company provided affordable mobile phones and cell service to millions of Africans in some of the poorest and most corrupt countries in the region. I mean, countries such as Congo, Malawi, Sierra Leone, and Uganda. You see, in our research, we call what Mo Ibrahim built a market-creating innovation. Market-creating innovations transform complicated and expensive products into products that are simple and affordable so that many more people in society could access them. Now, in this case, phones were expensive before Celtel made them much more affordable. Now, as other investors, some of his colleagues actually, saw that it was possible to create a successful mobile phone company on the continent, and they flooded in with billions of dollars of investments. And this led to significant growth in the industry. From barely nothing in 2000, today virtually every African country now has a vibrant mobile telecommunications industry. The sector now supports close to 1 billion phone connections. It has created nearly 4 million jobs and generates billions of dollars in taxes every year. Now, these are taxes that governments can now reinvest into the economy to build their institutions. And here's the thing. Because most people no longer have to bribe public officials just to get a phone, corruption, at least within this industry, has reduced. Now, if Mo Ibrahim had waited for corruption to be fixed in all of sub-Saharan Africa before he invested, he'd still be waiting today. You know, most people who engage in corruption know they shouldn't. And the public officials who were demanding bribes from people to get phones and the people who were paying the bribes, they knew they were breaking the law, but they did it anyways. The question is, why? The answer? Scarcity. See, whenever people would benefit from gaining access to something that's scarce, this makes corruption attractive. You know, in poor countries, we complain a lot about corrupt politicians who embezzle state funds. But in many of those countries, economic opportunity is scarce. 
And so corruption becomes an attractive way to gain wealth. We also complain about civil servants like police officers who extort money from everyday hardworking citizens. But most civil servants are grossly underpaid and are leading desperate lives. And so for them, extortion or corruption is a good way to make a living. You know, this phenomenon also plays itself out in wealthy countries as well. When rich parents bribe university officials so their children can gain admission into elite colleges, the circumstance is different, but the principle is the same. I mean, admission into elite colleges is scarce, and so bribery becomes attractive. The thing is, I'm not trying to say there shouldn't be things that are scarce in society or things that are selective. What I'm just trying to explain is this relationship between corruption and scarcity. And in most poor countries, way too many basic things are scarce. I mean, things like food, education, healthcare, economic opportunity, jobs. This creates the perfect breeding ground for corruption to thrive. Now, in no way does this excuse corrupt behavior. It just helps us understand it a bit better. Investing in businesses that make things affordable and accessible to so many more people attacks this scarcity and creates the revenues for governments to reinvest in their economies. Now, when this happens on a countrywide level, it can revolutionize nations. Consider the impact in South Korea. Now, in the 1950s, South Korea was a desperately poor country, and it was very corrupt. The country was ruled by an authoritarian government and engaged in bribery and embezzlement. In fact, economists at the time said tra- South Korea was trapped in poverty, and, that, and they referred to it as an economic basket case. When you looked at South Korea's institutions, even as late as the 1980s, they were on par with some of the poorest and most corrupt African countries at the time. But as companies like Samsung, Kia, Hyundai invested in innovations that made things much more affordable for so many more people, South Korea ultimately became prosperous. Now, as the country grew prosperous, It was able to transition from an authoritarian government to a democratic government and has been able to reinvest in building its institutions. And this has paid off tremendously. For instance, in 2018, South Korea's president was sentenced to 25 years in prison on corruption-related charges. This could never have happened decades ago when the country was poor and ruled by an authoritarian government. In fact, as we looked at most prosperous countries today, what we found was they were able to reduce corruption as they became prosperous, not before. So where does that leave us? I know it may sound like I'm saying we should just ignore corruption. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm suggesting, though, is that corruption, especially for most people in poor countries, is a workaround. It's a utility in a place where there are fewer, better options to solve a problem. Investing in innovations that make products much more affordable for many people not only attacks this scarcity, 
but it creates a sustainable source of revenue for governments to reinvest into the economies to strengthen their institutions. This is the critical missing piece in the economic development puzzle that will ultimately help us reduce corruption. You know, I lost hope in Nigeria when I was 16. And in some ways, the country has actually gotten worse. In addition to widespread poverty and endemic corruption, Nigeria now actually deals with terrorist organizations like Boko Haram. But somehow, I am more hopeful about Nigeria today than I've ever been before. When I see organizations investing in innovations that are creating jobs for people and making things affordable, I mean, organizations like LifeStore's Pharmacy, making drugs and pharmaceuticals more affordable for people, or Metro Africa Express, tackling the scarcity of distribution and logistics for many small businesses, or Andela, creating economic opportunity for software developers. I am optimistic about the future. I hope you will be too. Thank you. Support for TED Business comes from Odoo. What's Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash tedbusiness. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash tedbusiness. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. So let's take this idea one step further. How do you do business in environments that can be difficult and unpredictable and might not be what you're used to? Let's start with spotting a market-creating innovation. How do you even do that? Because that's the crux of a FOSA's concept. Yeah, so I mean, it's really, these innovations are just unbelievably transformative, right? But the thing about it is, they're not obvious until after you create the market. And so, you know, to your question, how do you spot them, right? Mm. You focus on people's struggles. So if we use Ibrahim as an example, he surveys the landscape and looks at how people communicate in many countries in Africa before he builds Celtel, right? And he says, if I want to communicate with my mom, I have to go to where she is. If she's in the village or if she's, you know, miles away, I have to go to where she is. If I want to send a message to a friend, if I want to visit some, I can't just call. I have to physically be in the same space. And he's like, that is a ton of work, a ton of struggle. He taps into that and he says, is there an innovation that I can develop that will help 
minimize this struggle or, or at least reduce this struggle. And at the time, you know, the GSM technology was just coming up, but it was incredibly expensive. Yep. Uh, and so when you look at many of the demographics, right, you're like, oh, these people, there's a lot of poverty, a lot of corruption. They don't make this much money and so on. Uh, you're like, there's no way this will work. Well, Ibrahim thought different. He said, if I can figure out a business model that meets them where they are and helps them afford this, I think we could create a market. Yeah. He did that. And, you know, the rest was history. Created billion-dollar industries that now employs millions of people. And, you know, it's just changed the face of the continent from a communication standpoint. So I hear you saying to the entrepreneurs out there, you need to look for inefficiencies and you need to talk to people. Talk to people about what some of their struggles are and then be creative about how can we maybe address the struggles. So how do you actually change your mind to prepare yourself to have a market-creating innovation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a, it's a brilliant question because it really does all start with the mindset. Um, if if you don't believe something is possible, something can be done, it's going to be impossible to actually do it. Um, and so, the first thing I'd recommend for you know, entrepreneurs, even policymakers, investors, is embrace the struggle. So when you mm. see challenges, when you see difficulties, when you see systems that aren't working. That really should point to um, an opportunity uh, mm-hmm. for you, right? You may not know exactly how to fix it or solve the problem, but that should point to uh, an opportunity. The second thing is, you know, as an entrepreneur working in sort of an emerging economy where there's, there's you know, widespread poverty and so on, there are certain things you can expect from the government or the system. Mm-hmm. Um, you can expect that the government may be a little bit more corrupt, at least un- overtly corrupt, than mm-hmm. other governments in richer countries. You can expect that maybe policy may not really be as permanent, right? Policy can change. And there are things you can do. You can just look at the last five to 10 years. If I decide I want to go start a business in this sector in Ghana, Nigeria, Bangladesh, I look at what has the government done over the last five to Mm, 10 years. And it gives you an idea, right? It says, you know, maybe they'll change policy again. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, you're going to know exactly what they'll do, but at least you can begin to prepare your mindset. So there are things like that you can do. And, And I say the last one is thinking about some of the things that many governments or even other businesses in prosperous countries would provide, it might be your responsibility to do that. So from an infrastructure standpoint, for instance, right, it might be your responsibility to educate your staff in a way you might not need to if you were creating a new market in, say, you know, New York or or Helsinki or something, right? And we've got some research that shows in many of today's prosperous countries, when they were coming up on that journey towards prosperity, many of the entrepreneurs had to do these things. I mean, Henry Ford mm-hmm. had to build steel mills, iron mm-hmm. ore mines. I mean, so it's it's sort of normal. We want to normalize this uh, thinking for market yeah. creation, but yeah. that would be how I would advise these entrepreneurs to think. So I hear you as a researcher telling people that they need to do their research. And as a professor, I'll tell people that they also need to do their homework. So do your homework, do your research, um, which gives you insight on what to expect to prepare yourself for what you are about to engage in. 
and recognize it's different. It is. It is different. Uh, And Afosa, let me tell you one of my experience. So I was in Ghana from 96 to 97, starting up a set of nurseries and literacy centers for poor kids. So wanted street kids to be able to get more access to education and ended up purchasing some land, did it the legit way, you name it, started building on that land. And then one day there was a sign at the site saying, stop constructing, blood was shed on this land you have not talked to our elders. Oh, my. So it was like, okay, we bought the land the legitimate way and gave the money, but we need to now talk to the elders. And so we realized we had to, you know, buy some alcohol to pour some libations so that we could continue building on that land. And this was something that was going to help their kids, help their community. Yeah. So how do you deal with the fact that we do know corruption exists? Yeah. is a challenge. And how do you face it as somebody that is entering these markets? Yeah, Madupe, I mean, I I think what you just said is uh, indicative of many of the problems that hinder or hamper uh, innovation and these kinds of good things to happen on, on the continent, right? That's how it sort of manifested itself for you it manifests itself in many other ways for, for others, but it's it's the same problem. It's there. I mean, I think the first thing I would say in response to that is just the recognition that it is a process, right? Mm. Every country is on a development journey. Mm-hmm. Some countries started that hundreds of years ago. Some countries started 50 years ago, some 10 years ago. And with each start for some of the countries, right, there's there's false starts. You start, you stop, yeah. you take one step forward, two steps back, and so on. And so it doesn't pay to compare a country that's been on this journey, say the United States, for 400 plus years yeah. to Ghana that really just started its journey, right? When you look at many countries when they started on this journey, this journey to the land of prosperity, mm-hmm. when they were as young as Ghana, underdeveloped, a lot of poverty and so on. You know, is this corruption thing an anomaly? Like, did they, how did they handle it? And what you'll find is it was rampant in many of these countries. Now, this doesn't mean we condone it and we don't try to fix it, but it gives us an appreciation for what the problem is and helps us think, you know, how can I like really get at the root cause, right? How can I get at solving this problem? And I think with that kind of thinking, we can get to much better solutions. You know, notice I'm not here sitting telling you, oh, here's how we solve that, or we just need to do this. Right. It's complex, right? Um, And we have to appreciate the complexity first before we even begin to discuss, like, what potential solutions can we put forth? I mean, you made me think that one country's corruption is another country's use of social networks and with certain people only getting access to opportunities. We call it corruption. Thank you. um, But these are countries that gained independence in like 1957. Thank you. Um, But what would we have called it 400 years ago? I had not thought about it in that way. So, So thank you for that. And I love this idea that you need to change your mindset to remember when you're doing work in developing countries and elsewhere, Mm -hmm. that it's a process. It's a a process. It's a a process process and a journey. One last question for you. We have focused a lot on how an entrepreneur should think, especially if they're considering investing in a developing country or entrepreneurship in a developing country, which is fantastic. 
there are some entrepreneurs that are listening that are not ready to take that step uh, in terms of investing in a developing market. What's something you'd love any entrepreneur to learn from your research? The most important thing I think entrepreneurs uh, can take away is uh, life um, and entrepreneurship, to be more specific, is a series of problem-solving exercises. Mm. And so you wake up every day and you are, as an entrepreneur, you are, you, you are, you are going to be faced with problems and, and it's your job to solve them. Now, you can have one of two attitudes, right? The problems come and you're like, oh my gosh, I like, why is this here? What's wrong mm-hmm. with this thing? You know, and that's one attitude. But you can have another attitude and say, if I'm having this problem, it means many other people are. Perhaps in solving this problem, there is significant opportunity. Um, and at the end of the day, if you're solving a problem, you are ultimately making life better for many other people in the world, whether it's making them um, have access to products and services. They historically didn't create jobs for people. They give people dignity, help them provide for their families. That, I mean, and an entrepreneur's role in, in society is so noble and so important uh, mm. that I think, you know, we need as many of them as, as we can get to have this mindset of, I, 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 I see a challenge, that's an opportunity. So, so interesting, this perspective and just to really understand how you make things work. Because that's just, that's all I want for the continent, you know, like for my cousins, family, others to just have access to so much more and they can. We just need to step in and do more. Um, And it's our responsibility in some ways. Um, So I think we talked a lot about changing mindsets and let's hope more people do that. Let's hope. Yeah. That's it for today. Kim Naderfane-Peterza is our producer and Sam Baer is our mixer. Cassie Braba did research on this episode and it was fact-checked by Eliza Solomon. Special thanks to Anna Phelan, Michelle Quint, Corey Hajim, Nicole Bodie, and Colin Helms. I'm Madupa Akinola. I'll talk to you again next week. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.